Richmond City Church and the Facebook world. Uh, man. So let's be honest up front and say this season has derailed everybody's everyday life. Um, and we get that and we know that it's been a struggle. We know that it's been inconvenience. Um, but I believe that we've been given a unique opportunity to experience growth in our, in our lives and in our homes um, that would not exist otherwise. I believe that the slowing down, the stopping uh, is creating a space in our life. And if we utilize that space, that God can move into it and utilize it for our good. Um, or we can continue to rush and stress about what it is we do not get to do. Um, but but I want to I want to take that I believe statement and encourage you this morning that uh, we should we should move into an expectation um, that we're about to experience growth as individuals and in our homes. And our goal over the next few Sundays, as you are quarantined, uh, is to give you an opportunity. We want to create a discussion in here so that you can continue a discussion in your home. Um, So that's our goal, uh, and we believe that that discussion will promote and and help you grow as an individual and as a family. So we want to use the next few Sundays to do that. We typically have a very interactive worship gathering here. We're very discussion-oriented. We talk to each other. I listen to you. I write your answers on our whiteboard right here. Uh, so we're going to do our best to maintain our sense of normal, but we understand that our sense of normal is not everybody's sense of normal when you come to church. Um, so uh, bear with us as we uh, attempt to keep our sense of normal with the interactive discussion-based thing, recognizing that we have about seven seconds before what we do is posted to Facebook, and then another seven seconds from what you comment is posted to our screen. Uh, so we're going to work with that 15-second delay, and we're going to do our best to maintain what it is that we have grown to enjoy and love about City Church Salt County, and that is the conversational aspect. That is the opportunity to come in, to be transparent, to be honest and open and real with uh, a group of people that are just on a spiritual journey trying to figure out what life's about. Uh, so as we gather around computers, interacting in this live stream, uh, we will leave you with a discussion point to continue in your home, then at the conclusion of this season, you can reboot your everyday life with greater clarity with those that are closest to you. So let's utilize this, create discussion in your home, and then when life gets back to normal, we can reboot very intentionally uh, so that we can move into life uh, after experiencing that growth. So uh, first discussion point for us this morning, uh, I'm going to be honest, I have not been to the grocery store over the last week. I have intentionally let my wife go. I have gone to Walgreens, though. Uh, so the question for you uh, is this. Uh, we've all seen some odd things, either on Facebook or in person at the grocery store. What's the oddest thing that you've seen or experienced in a shopping experience ever since this whole corona thing blew up? What's the weirdest stuff you've seen in a grocery store or a store of that nature? I've been judged so hardcore for buying a couple canned goods. Like just the <laughs> I've had people walk by me and just look at me funny. Like I'm like taking all the supply away. <laughs> Maybe they're judging you because you didn't buy toilet paper. <laughs> <laughs> so you feel judged because you're going to the store and you're 
Uh, you're hoarding all the, the green beans in the canned food section. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Shelly came back from the store the other day and said that she, uh, she was on our normal grocery trip, which has tripled our grocery bill, but it has eliminated our eating out budget. So I'm hoping that all that, uh, uh eliminates itself. Uh, but she was at the grocery store came home and said that the toilet paper aisle was on lockdown and had guards at both sides, and you had to tell them what brand of toilet paper you wanted so that they could go get it for you and bring it back to the aisle one case at a time. You were not allowed to go get your own TP. They had it on lockdown, and they were guarded. So, so uh, Sam shared that Walmart Little Rock has, uh, had a massive amount of beef liver and a few other beets. Uh, Who buys beef liver? Is is that a normal thing, Sam? <clears throat> uh, Chad saying baby for, for me, Oh, that's disgusting. Chad, that goes back to our DNA group a couple weeks ago where we were going to eat some strange things, which we still have chocolate crickets on our list uh, for the when we get to meet back as a DNA group. So I still got that on my radar. Maybe we'll just eat baby food instead. Um, so they're saying that our commentary might Okay, I'll repeat anything said in the room then. Hey, we're learning together. Good job, guys. Exactly, nobody wanted Samson. Tanya said completely empty shelves in Kroger. No toilet paper, dry beans, or meat. Completely empty shelves. No TP. Did you say dry beans? Dry beans and meat. Dry beans? And meat, all empty. I don't know what to do with dry beans. I don't even know what, I don't even know what you do. So there's been, um, Empty streets, empty shelves, uh, empty restaurants. Incredible to see that this has actually shut restaurants down. And we were on our way home from the hospital the other night after visiting uh, um, with Shelly's dad. And uh, we went to Larry's Pizza because Larry's Pizza said, Our dining room is closed, but we're going to give you a discount on pizzas. But you have to go through the drive-thru. So uh, the restaurant was completely empty, but the drive-thru wrapped around the entire stinking building. It was insane um the overcrowded the overcrowding that we've seen in certain places uh which is so strange that some places have been left abandoned like the inside of places but then other places like the drive-thrus have experienced incredible overcrowding you've seen that overcrowding in the toilet paper aisles and things like that uh that overcrowdedness in certain places is how John sets the scene for the most lengthy portion of his gospel narrative in the gospel of John we know that gospel means good news so when we talk about the gospel of John John is the author of the book of John in the New Testament, there are four books that give you an account, that give you a story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And John is one of those authors. He tells the gospel or the good news about the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. But the most lengthy portion of John's gospel is concerning the last week of Jesus' life. Almost half of the 21 chapters in John, he picks it up in chapter 12, and the rest of his gospel tells about one week of Jesus' life, about his death and his resurrection. And he sets the scene, many of us know it as Holy Week, but he sets the scene with the scene of overcrowdedness. And, and it's something that we'll look at and we'll miss if we're, if we're not paying attention. If you look at John chapter 12 and verse 1, chapter 12 starts out with this simple statement. 
Six days before the Passover. Six days before the Passover. So for most of us that live in Arkansas or, or America, that doesn't make much sense growing up in a predominantly Christian or uh, church culture or, or maybe just a, uh, a agnostic or atheistic culture. Uh, but when, when John says six days before the Passover, Jerusalem, yeah, Jerusalem has a population of 20,000. So check this out. Jerusalem has a population of 20,000. Um, 20 to 30,000. So think about this. What's the population of Benton, Arkansas? Anybody in the room know? Three million. From, no, that's Arkansas. I said Benton, Arkansas. Yeah, Benton, Arkansas. Population of Benton, Arkansas lands somewhere around 30K. Or at least that's what the last sign says. We're about to do a census. I'm interested to see how that goes. But in, okay, in, in Jerusalem, the normal population, about twenty to 30,000, increases in one week by a massive 150,000 people. So it goes from 30,000 to 150,000, or no, actually it goes to 180,000 because it increases by 150,000. So let's think about this. That is the population of Little Rock in the footprint of Benton. When John says in the first statement of chapter 12, six days before the Passover, he wants you to know that the entire city of Little Rock just came to Benton. And it's crowded. It's packed. There's outlying towns that are uh, like the toilet paper aisles right now. And then the, the, the city of Jerusalem looks like Larry's Pizza's drive-through. It's incredibly crowded as the population is six times its normal. So Jewish people from all over coming into one town, Jerusalem, to celebrate the exodus of the children of Israel from their bondage to Pharaoh in Egypt 1,400 years before. For 1,400 years, they've been coming in to Jerusalem or they've been celebrating this wherever they're at. They celebrate that they were slaves in Egypt and then God... Uh, through Moses, led them out of slavery, out of Egypt, out of bondage, and they are to celebrate the Passover as a remembrance of that event. And they continue to do that in this setting. So they all converge on Jerusalem for that celebration. The theme is this. What's the theme of Passover? National pride It's a theme of freedom. Uh, Theme of national pride. A theme of freedom and deliverance. Deliverance from who? Deliverance from oppressive rulers in their life. So the theme is national pride, it's freedom, and deliverance from oppression. But the irony is that they no longer have a king, they have no freedom, and they're dominated by Rome. It's just mind-blowing here. Six days before the Passover, 150,000 people add on to the 30,000 people, overcrowded, It's a party. It's a celebration. We've gathered to celebrate the nation of Israel being set free and delivered. 
But the strange reality, the irony, is that our nation has no leader. Our nation has no freedom. And the Roman Empire owns us. But we're going to gather and we're going to celebrate. And we're going to remember the Passover. In my 40 years of life, um, I can recall only a couple of events that even begin to compare to what we're experiencing as a world right now. Right? Uh, with the coronavirus, there's only two events that came to mind. Anybody want to guess what those are in the room? Y2K. That's the first one. That's the, the one global event that uh, I remember counting down to our doom that night. Right, Counting down to our doom that night. And then somebody has the epiphany at 11.30 that says, you know what? It's already 12.30 on the other side of the country. We're okay. Um, but I remember that night, the whole world thought, wondering if the entire world was going to go black and chaos was going to break out in that one night. The whole world counted down. The whole world turned its eyes towards that one thing. And that's really one of the only times in my life that I can remember the world being captivated by one thing at the same time. Um, anybody in the room know my second thing? September 11th, that's the other one. Good job, Chad. Uh, so September 11th, I can still see the toilet paper. No, it wasn't the toilet paper aisles. I still remember driving down Highway 5 by my house and going by Riverside Grocery and seeing cars lined up all the way down the highway trying to get gas that day. I still remember driving through town and going through my day and just remembering silence over the entire city. I remember what it was like the day of September 11th um, when sports were canceled. That's the last time, the only time I can remember that professional sports, college sports, the entire world shutting down for one thing. And news coverages, 24 hours a day talking about the same thing over and over and over and over. It never stopped. September 11th was more than crazy, though. It was emotional. Right, Because when you think about September 11th, you don't just think about the facts, you think about the feelings. And you think about what was stirred within your own heart. Um, while talks, I remember being at Christmas that year, uh, the December following, and I remember talks of reinstating the draft. I remember my uncles who had fought in Vietnam and things like that talking about, yeah, they're probably going to reinstate the draft. And hey, you're prime age to be picked. I remember the emotions and the fears and the things that uh, stirred because of that. I remember the doubts about our future. Um, you remember thinking, wow, if they can come in here and in one afternoon do, or one morning do so much destruction, then what does our future look like? Are we going to be dominated by foreign leaders? Are we going to maintain our freedom? How's this going to go? And I remember the emotions that were attached to that. So do uh, go with me on a mental journey for a second. Imagine this. If our country had not bounced back from September 11th, and each July we lit fireworks while suppressed by foreign dictators. Picture that with me for a moment. 
Saddam had not been overthrown. The events that followed September 11th did not happen. And in fact, they continued to press in. They continued to to come and assert their authority over us. And they continued to capture our lives to the point where they owned us. And now every summer, every 4th of July, we go out and we throw parties in the streets and we celebrate independence while we're owned by foreign dictators. What emotions and mental conflict would such an Independence Day stir for us? What would that do to us as we celebrate that every summer? Can you imagine it, Derek? So you'd have moments like just, uh, I know what 4th of July looks like in our streets and we've had houses built all around us right now and our neighborhoods are growing and it's interesting. We used to live in a rural place, but now we're surrounded by families and the 4th of July is a party. Like there's fireworks going everywhere. People are celebrating. Families are gathered and it's just this big party. But you're saying that if we um, lived and celebrated while we were oppressed by foreign rulers, you'd have moments, you'd have glimpses where you gather and you celebrate, but then as soon as the party's over, you go back into everyday life and there's this conflict of how you celebrate and how you live. It's an emotional roller coaster to think about that. That would be hard. That would be hard. When John opens chapter 12, six days before Passover... That's the scene that he opens with. That's the scene that he opens with. Let's read from John 12, verse 12 now. We're going to pick it up in verse 12. And we're going to read that section right there and see what it is that he wants to enter in as he enters into the last week of Jesus' life. The next day, when large crowds that had come to the festival, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. They took palm branches, and they went out to meet him. They kept shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. However, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him. And they had done these things to him. Meanwhile, the crowds, which had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify. They couldn't be quiet. They couldn't stop telling of what they had seen. And now you've gone from 30,000 to 180,000, and this man Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, and 180,000 people who have come to celebrate national pride, freedom, and deliverance while they have no freedom, they have no king, and they are oppressed. They have heard of this man who raises people from the dead, and they will not shut up talking about him. And now they chant... King Jesus. Hmm. The crowd met him because they had heard that he'd done these signs. And then the Pharisees said to one another, You see, 
You've accomplished nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The world has gone after him. I want us to narrow in on one statement that he makes here in this section, and it's this. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Hosanna uh, means to, it's a plea, deliver us, save us. So when they say, Hosanna, it's, 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 it's them pleading with Jesus, praying to Jesus, declaring to Jesus, you save us. We need help. We need deliverance. We need freedom. We need a leader. And we're asking you to do these things. Hosanna. And, and, and it's a word that is delivered with incredible emotion because as we just saw when we would celebrate Independence Day with no independence, it's an emotional reality. So here we are. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, until we find out where that statement comes from, it doesn't have as much depth to us. And that statement comes from Psalm chapter 118, verse 26. I'm going to write this so maybe you can go back and read it later on. Psalm 118, 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The crowd in Jerusalem is quoting a psalm of thanksgiving. It's a psalm of victory. It's a psalm that was written in a time of incredible victory. Uh, We believe that it was written when David takes his throne after defeating the enemies. He comes in. Victory is theirs. National pride is at a higher place than it's ever been before. The people are now enjoying the freedom of owning their own land, living in their own homes, raising their own families, and they have been delivered from every other oppressor that they'd ever have. David writes the psalm, and now it's a song of victory that the nation sings over and over. And as King David took the throne and uh, it was also likely repeated uh, later on in Israel's history as they had spent 70 years under the oppression of foreign leaders such as Babylon and Assyria. For 70 years they had been captives in another land, stripped from their home in Babylon, and then 70 years later they get to return, and what do they do? They sing this song. They sing this song. As they reinstate their freedom, reinstate their nation, and they come back together, they sing this song. Interestingly enough, Psalm 118 is written to be sung in parts. It's kind of like Kenny Rogers, right? And, and Dolly Parton, islands in the street. So we'll miss Kenny as we know that he passed away yesterday. Uh, but it's like that good duet. Maybe you're younger and you're like, I don't, I don't even know who Kenny Rogers was. Maybe it's Tim McGraw and Faith Hill for you, right? Maybe it's that duet. What's your duet, Tyler? What? I wouldn't even know. We we have different taste in music. I don't know if really anywhere outside country music. Yeah, country music's got it right, I guess. Nobody else does it. So, um, but it's like that. Psalm one eighteen was meant to be sung in parts, like that. The king would recite his part outside the gate. So check this out, if you can see it. So he's you've got the gate right here. The king is here outside the gate, and he's reported, he, he's, he's, he's saying his part, he's declared I, who he is, what's happened, what he's done, and what has brought him here. And then from inside the gate, here we have the people and the priest who would respond to him. 
who would acknowledge that he is the king. And so after the king would say his part walking up to the gate, now the people would respond from their part from inside the gate. And what would they say? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's our king. He is our king. And they proclaimed it over David when he came in and took his throne and sat down on his throne. And David came in. Here's what God's done. Here's what's brought me here. I'm coming. And they said, blessed are you, the one who has come in the name of the Lord. We receive you as our king. We welcome you. And we acknowledge you as our king. And it would be sung in parts. So in this moment, here's what's going on. The crowd sees Jesus' entrance as significant among the most Major events and victories in their national history. We just got through saying that there's only a handful of events that we can even begin to compare with the situation our country's in right now. Well, when Jesus entered into Jerusalem and they say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're saying there's only two other events that we can compare to what we believe is happening right now. It's when David took his throne and it's when we came home from Babylon. Blessed is he. Blessed are you, Jesus. Save us. Hosanna. Set us free. Set us free. He is to be the king who will deliver them from Herod as God delivered them from Pharaoh. And that's what they're asking of him right now as they lay palms for him to enter in to the gate. The response to this scene was not unanimous. So you've got this crowd of 180,000 people that have flocked to the city for this festival, for this party. And and you can imagine that within 180,000 people, there's different people groups. And different people groups are less excited or more excited about what's their influence, their financial gain, etc., etc., etc. And so when Jesus came to town and they say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The, the religious leaders say, this man is disrupting our life. This man is disrupting our status quo. And they pushed back on Jesus for self-preservation. The Pharisees pushed back to preserve themselves. The second group was the Roman leaders. Second group was the Roman leaders. Jesus' potential kingship was a threat to their authority. When they say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, be our king, then the Roman leaders are watching this scene and they say, who's he going to deliver them from? It's us. He's a threat to us, to our authority. So they push back in order to maintain their authority. The third group, Is everyday people. The everyday people made up the crowd, and Jesus' kingship could provide deliverance from their current condition, their current situation, their current hardships, their current struggles, their current financial situation, their current family situation. Having a king who would give national pride, freedom, and deliverance would help deliver them from their current condition. So they pressed in. They pressed into Jesus. The first two groups pressed back, but these everyday people, they press into Jesus for self-gain. Because he can change their condition. And then there's the last group. 
It's the Jesus followers. It's those who have been walking with him, those that have been observing, listening to his teaching, those that have been with him day in and day out, who are following him from town to town. You had the Jesus followers. And Jesus' kingship would blur the image of him that they had grown comfortable with. And I think about this group, and I'm like, they would have been excited. Surely this would have been like the epitome of what was going on. But when you think about the Jesus followers who had followed in his dusty footsteps from town to town, they'd ate fish with him, they'd been on boats with him, they had interacted with people with him, they had observed him go in and go out. It's like, whoa, he's king now? Like, for three and a half years we followed this man who was an ordinary, I mean, not ordinary in the sense of ordinary, but, but, but he didn't have national power. He didn't have a position, a title. And that's going to blur the image of what we've grown comfortable with as we look at him. So the Jesus followers, the first group pressed back for self-preservation. The religious leaders pushed back to maintain their authority. Everyday people pressed in for self-gain, while the Jesus followers, they had their ups and downs. They had their ups and downs, but gained clarity about him in the end. I wanted to tell you something about the Jesus followers. It's like, they got it. Like, they're like, yeah, you're the king. It's like they didn't. Because in the weeks to come, we're going to see how they scattered. Like, this was ups. They were about to experience downs. But then when we read from the Jesus followers later on, we, we realize that they've gained clarity in the end. Hindsight being twenty twenty, we know that Jesus was never crowned king of Israel and he did not overthrow Rome. We know that to be true from where we stand today. Yet, the scripture is clear and consistent concerning his statement to Pilate in John 18. And Pilate says, are you the king? Is that who you are? Is that why you've come? You're here to overthrow me? And what was Jesus' response? Hmm. My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. Let's look at one more verse. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. The author of Hebrews encourages us, Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before Him, He endured the cross despising the shame, and he did what? He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Why? Because his kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is not of this world. As we have our eyes on Jesus for just a brief moment this morning, I want to ask, I want to ask you to do one thing. How do we find ourselves responding to him? Like what group do we see ourselves in As we have our eyes on Jesus. Are we pushing back for self-preservation? Are we like, yeah, like I hear everything we're saying. I see everything we're reading. But like, status quo is kind of good in my life. And and I just want to push back for a little bit. And I I, I have my eyes on him. I see what you're seeing. I I, I hear what you're saying. but, But we're going to push back. Because... I got a business, I got a life, I got a family, I got an agenda, I got goals, and I'm just going to push back in order to maintain my status quo. Or maybe we're pushing back to maintain our authority like the, like the Roman leaders. But, 
But the funny thing is, for most of us, that authority is not national authority like we're over people. Most of it is autonomy. Like, we think we have authority over ourself, over our body. And, yeah, I hear what we're talking about Jesus. I hear what we're saying about Jesus. But I'm going to push back because I want to be the authority over my life. Maybe we're pressing back for that. Or are we like the everyday people? Maybe you hear this today and you're pressing in. It's like there's something to be found in this Jesus. Like something in my condition, in my situation can be better. And I'm going to press in. I'm going to receive. And, and, and I think I'm going, to, I'm going to press into him so that he can do something for me. So that he can make things better for me. Or maybe you find yourself in the category of the Jesus followers. Ready to follow Jesus through the ups and downs as he grows clearer every day. There's going to be ups. There's going to be downs. He didn't like immediately make, wave his scepter and make my life easier, better. But you know what? With every day, with every month, with every year, His kingship becomes more and more clear to me, more and more obvious. Which group do you find yourself in today? Here's the talking point that I give you for your home. Here's what I'm going to encourage you to continue as we shut this thing down. I encourage you to visit with those in your home this morning and discuss the following. Discuss the following. Here's what I'm asking you to do. Which response are you currently giving? Discuss with those people in your home which category, which response you find yourself giving right now. As we talk right now, and we're explaining Jesus, who He is, and, and who and what He's done, and what people are expecting Him to be, that He is a King, but His King is not of this world Uh, We need to keep our eyes on Him, the author and perfecter of our faith. We need to run our race with endurance because He he despised the shame, endured the cross. uh, He bled out for you and for me, and, and He took that cross upon Himself because the wages of sin is death, and He doesn't want me to die. He wants me to live. So He took my death, my sin, my guilt, my shame upon His body, He carried the cross, endured the cross, despised my shame, and now he sits at the right hand of his Father in the throne of God in heaven. What response do you find yourself currently giving? I want you to talk about that with the people in your home. And then I wanted to ask you this. Which would you like move into like number one what response are you currently giving number two which one would you like to move into like maybe you've been pressing back on jesus maybe preserving yourself maybe you've been uh just trying to be autonomous and authoritative over your own life but you're like i'd really like to move into this jesus follower category where i know i'm going to have ups i know i'm going to have downs But by the end of it, I want him to be so clear that I understand his kingship, his authority, his goodness. I want to move into that. I find myself here, but I want to find myself here. Discuss that in your home and 
And finally, here's the last thing to discuss. What, if any changes or confessions, would need to be made in order to make this happen? Like if you want to move from here and you want to find yourself in the Jesus follower category where life has ups and downs but his kingship is good, like what things need to be changed or confessed in your life that would allow you to make that shift? I want you to talk about these things with the people that are in your home this morning or the people that you have within your reach this morning. If you're watching this alone and you're a part of our church, I want you to comment. I want you to, to, uh, to reach out to those that are in our church and, and just discuss this. If you're watching this with family, I want you to, to, at the conclusion of this, discuss those who are in your home with you right now and say, where do we want to be and how do we begin to confess and make changes to get there? The last thing I want to share with you this morning is... <clears throat> Fifteen hours ago, in three minutes, my father-in-law passed away. Like at 8.15 last night, we were on the phone with his wife, my mother-in-law, at the very moment that he passed away. Um, and, And yesterday was like so hard but so good at the same time. And I think everybody, me and all all his children... My wife and all her siblings, we were gathered together for the entire day and just talking and reflecting and celebrating and crying and just all the things that went into that day. And, and, and it's like one of those days that you, as a kid, as a son or as a daughter, you fear that day your whole life. Right? It's like that's the day that you're like, I don't know how I'm going to take that day when that day happens. And it's the most fearful day of your life as a kid. But yesterday was one of the, even though it was that day, it was also one of the best days that we've ever experienced as children. We sat and we talked and we listened and shared stories. And we reflected on on the man that was my wife's father, who was my father-in-law, who was a part of my life for 18 years. Man, 18 years goes fast. We reflected on him. We told stories. People called. People messaged and told stories. And you, you find out the influence and the heritage and the legacy of a man when it comes to this day. And it was powerful. It was encouraging. It was a day of celebration. It was a day of weeping and all those things wrapped up together. But one thing sticks out to me this morning is while we were reflecting with with his kids, one of his sons over dinner recalled a conversation that he had had just the day before. And he said this. He said, I was talking to my dad. Like, the last conversation I ever had with my dad. I asked him, Dad, how how do you get to the point that you're at right? We're not talking about the hospital bed, and we're not talking about sickness. We're, we're talking about how do you have such confidence in death? How do you have joy in suffering? How do you have peace in this? How, like, I've seen you go up and down over the last couple of weeks, and I know this hasn't been easy on any of us, but when I sit and I talk to you right now, that you, there's so much strength and confidence and, and even joy underlying this circumstance. Dad, how, do, how, how do we get there? such a powerful question to be able to ask your father at the end of his life and here's 
here's what I think the ticket is, guys. For Jesus' followers, we have ups, we have downs. But through it all, Hebrews 12 says this. Keep your eyes set on Jesus while you run your race. While you go through the peaks and when you go through the valleys, Jesus' followers have their eyes fixed on Him. And while you run your race, keeping your eyes in the, on Him gives you endurance to navigate the ups and the downs. And here's what happens As you get closer to the end of your race, He becomes clearer. As we draw closer to the end of our race that we have run with endurance, keeping our eyes fixed on Him, the One who endured the cross, who despised shame for us, we keep our eyes fixed right there. And as we get closer, He becomes clearer and His kingship becomes sweeter. So the question... How do, how do we get here? We become Jesus followers. We become confident in death. We become joyful in suffering. Not because it's easy. But because we have our eyes fixed on Him through the ups, through the downs. It's going to be hard. But it's going to be possible. Which group do you find yourself in? Which group would you like to be in? What things do you need to confess or change in order to make that happen? I encourage you to have this discussion in your home. I also encourage you to do one last thing for me. If you got a decision, something to confess, something to change, message us on our Facebook page. Communicate with us. We want to help. We want to encourage. We want to, to, uh, to be present in your life even though we're in this situation in our, in our nation. Reach out to us. Let us be a helper to you. If you have family, utilize your family for this conversation. If we don't, we want to be your family. City Church sees each other as a family. Just living everyday life together. Trying to keep Jesus at the center of it. Doing our best to the ups and downs. Encouraging one another. Pointing each other back to Him who is good. Him who is King. His kingdom is not of this world. But as we get closer, he becomes clearer. And we want to point each other towards that. So if you're looking for a family, we want to be your family as well. What group are you in? What group would you like to be in? What things need to be changed or confessed in order to help you get there? We pray for you this morning. Reach out to us if we can encourage you. For our City Church family, we love you. We miss you. We look forward to this being a thing of the past. There's so many exciting things happening in our church. And part of me just moans the fact that we're sitting here in a room of four today talking to a computer while we've got growth and expansion and facility opportunities and so many things. People come into faith. People come into our church. We have a church full of people that have not been to church in years or decades and they're just so excited to be a part of this family. And all of a sudden the whole world shuts down. But Jesus is king and he sits on the throne at the right hand of his father right now, reigning and ruling over all of this. 
And he wants us to slow down and use this season to experience growth that couldn't happen otherwise. So we're not going to moan about it. We're going to celebrate this season. We're going to maximize it. And then we're going to come out of it. We're going to be regrouped, rebooted, and ready to be intentional. Let me pray for you. God, you're so good.